everyone starts from the same position and we all start with that self-doubt and we probably all still have it. Everybody gets criticized for everything that they do. So if you just quit all of your businesses and just sat in a room, you'd be criticized for that by somebody. I think a lot of people think that if they do what they're told will bring happiness, that they'll be happy. And I just, if people just follow what's in their heart, even if it's not trendy, I just think there's nothing that can match happiness. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. As you can probably tell since I ramble on about it all the time, one of my favourite parts of creating this show is hearing not only so many fascinating and unique stories I might not otherwise have come across, but even within those stories, getting to actually sit down with the protagonist to unearth the parts that shorter interviews or written pieces might skate over. Today's guest is the perfect example of that, whose incredible success has gained her worldwide recognition, but whose earlier chapters fascinated me even more. Sarah Andrews is the owner of iconic Tasmanian Airbnb Captain's Rest that she bought as a shack in 2016, despite locals promising her that nobody would come to visit the middle of nowhere. It is now booked out every day of the year and up to almost a year in advance, earning ten dollars to $15,000 per month, with an entire local economy starting to build up around the venue as crowds started to flock to Tasmania's remote west coast. Applying her earlier science background to the science of hosting and marketing, Sarah has since turned her newfound expertise into a globally acclaimed hosting masterclass, guiding other business owners to success around the world. And her new book is also very soon to come out. But what I loved hearing the most was the roller coaster it took to get her here, covering a career as a spatial scientist, a year living on a yacht traveling the world, a traumatic Mexican storm leading to a shipwreck-like rescue by the Mexican Navy, and so much more in between. I mean, if there's a film director listening into this one, you're welcome. I was both emotionally exhausted and invigorated by the end of this episode, which is really only just the beginning for Sarah Andrews. I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I did. Sarah, what a great name. <laughs> welcome to Seize the Yay. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for joining me from the beautiful location, Captain's Rest, that we will be talking all about today. It looks, oh, there are the birds. <laughs> yes. I did promise you some ducks. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> it looks absolutely glorious. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We have some really strange weather here. We're in this really unique part of Tasmania where it could be snowing and and storming in all other places, but here we'll have sunshine and people will be swimming. We're in this little microclimate. That's um, amazing. So it's officially the middle of winter and it's I'm in a t-shirt and the sun out. So pretty lucky. Glorious. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we
we get into how you ended up there, because I absolutely love tracing through all the chapters of people's lives, we kick off every episode with a little icebreaker, which is just to ask everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them. To break through often what becomes quite a glossy sort of surface of our digital lives and you've had some incredible, incredible success, a beautiful new book, so much gloss. So can you break the ice and remind us what's really down to earth or relatable about you? I nearly failed high school English and I <gasps> still can't spell and my grammar's terrible. I don't know the difference between a noun and a but I am a published author. So there you go. Anyone, everything's possible. There's always hope. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh well you absolutely can't tell in the book mm-hmm. it is absolutely perfect so well yeah. done thank you <laughs> I have a lot of help <laughs> so the first section as you might know is your way TA where as I mentioned we sort of trace through all the different chapters of your life right from the very beginning because I think particularly when people do walk into your life in a chapter like you're the one you're in now where you're releasing amazing new programs and have hit so many beautiful milestones and sort of have some clear direction. Everyone forgets that actually most of us spend the earlier parts of our life having no idea where we're going and not knowing, you know, the magic that's going to come next. So take us back to young Sarah. Growing up in WA of all places, I didn't think anyone would end up in Strawn Tassie if they'd started in beachy WA. So what were you like as a kid? What were your first ideas of what you wanted to be and and what you wanted to, you know, what you wanted your future to look like? Mm -hmm. I was a strange kid, I guess. My earliest memories of being an escape artist. So I spent, as soon as I could walk, I started running away from home and (laughs) people would bring me back. But the attempts are like very elaborate from being a very young age. And I didn't actually get to escape, but about five, my parents bought me a pony. So I was able to ride off into the distance instead of continue to run off. And it was an amazing childhood. I was, I felt so free. You know, I grew up about five hours north of Perth. And at the time there was really nothing there. It was just this tiny little town and the beach and the desert. And I remember being able to ride my horse in any direction, you know, towards the sea, towards the mountains, build cubbies and explore. And not really having a concept that the world outside of mine was very different. Mm. You know, it was just very simple and beautiful. I read so much and spent time with atlases and encyclopedias and dreamt about the world. But, you know, I had these beautiful encyclopedias, but they were sort of made in the 60s and 50s. So (laughs) what I thought the world was like was this place that didn't exist anymore. And I think once I left that small town to go to university, I I was so shocked with the shininess of the world and the mm. fast-pacedness of it and everybody seems so different to me, which is a bit of a shock as I can imagine. a teenager. But what girl. an idyllic start <laughs> to, the, to this beautiful life. I mean, that sounds absolutely glorious and so analogue, which I really yeah, love. <laughs> it was. Um, we never had a TV, no internet. We, I think our town didn't have a McDonald's till a long, many years after I'd left to go to university. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I just kind of figured that's how the whole world was, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was very different. <laughs> but I think the longer that you can keep that kind of bubble alive for a child, the more magical that is that you even had a period of your life where you believe that the world was like that. I love yeah. that. Like we all do get a bit of a rude awakening at some point, but I love that your childhood was so beautifully protected from that. And so, yeah, yeah so experienced through things like 
old encyclopedias and books, which I don't think any of children this, these days would have ever seen an encyclopedia, yeah. which is a bit crazy when you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember having to read Matilda in like primary school, that book that Roald Dahl wrote about the girl who read, you know, so many books and thinking she's just like me, like she's like no difference. <laughs> yeah. Because I used to have stacks and stacks of books around me all the time. Oh, wow. But that was the way you would experience the world. So after school, we would go to the library for entertainment and then the beach. Like, you know, there wasn't burgers and things like that to entertain kids <laughs> or iPads. So, yeah, I feel really grateful for it now, looking at my nieces and yeah. nephews and the amount of consumption they need to be entertained constantly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's so much sort of instant gratuity and, yeah, not a lot of slow pace or slow enough to just appreciate the really small things around you. Yeah. And I can imagine like that would have been a massive culture shock not having ever seen a McDonald's to then yes. <laughs> going to uni and having it all change. Yeah. I read that you started off as a spatial scientist. So coming from the background that you've just described, how did you even – no, that was a job and how did you sort of <laughs> fall into that as a career where did you think it would lead there's so much pressure I don't know if it's still like that when we were in high school to go to university and that mm. was like the aim if you needed to get good grades to get into a university and then you needed to do a class that was highly regarded and I really wanted to do fine arts or design or architecture but everyone in my life, my parents, you know, my teachers at school said, no, you need to go and study something that you're going to get a, a good, well-paying job after uni. That's the most important thing. You know, <laughs> no one who does an arts degree gets a job. <laughs> <laughs> that old dialogue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I was always really good at science. I have a, a science-y, you know, mind. Sorry, I'm distracted because there's this big seal outside and some dolphins <laughs> swimming past. <gasps> Oh my gosh, turn the screen around. Can you I, I, see them from I don't here? I you're going to see them. If the pot of dolphins come in, I'll turn the screen so you can see. But um, I'll keep my eyes on them. <laughs> so you've kind of made a full circle back to those idyllic roots. Now you're just yeah. in strong Tassie watching yeah, pods see, of dolphins swim by. You can see by. how it happened. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. a huge pot of dolphins. Oh, when they come closer, I'll turn the screen so you can see. But it's incredible. There's probably about... 20 of them cruising through stop it yeah I hope they do it if they come close I'll turn but you probably won't be able to see it on the oh screen my right gosh. now well that would be a podcast I like <laughs> yes oh, there'd be a pod of dolphins on the pod oh my gosh <laughs> all right I'll, I'll see if I can energetically draw them towards us <laughs> Let's manifest them closer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's so funny you said that, though, because I think that is something that tends to happen when you go back through these people's stories is they have, as a child before, things like expectation and pressure and career concerns about success and, you know, progress, before that starts to burden you and taint your view of the world, you know, you gravitate towards certain things. And often now, later in life, you find people often do a full circle and come mm -hmm. back to something that actually was always what they loved, but there's so many weird diversions along the way, yeah. like into spatial science. Yeah. At school, I think as a young person, they just they create this world where that's all that is possible, you know, to mm. go to university and to get a good job and then work in that job. There's no other models. There might be now, but back then there were no other models that I could follow. But I just picked it because it was a brand new area of science that no one had really ever done. And I'd loved science. I've always loved science. So I was like, well, I'll do that. <laughs> to me, going to university and getting a job 
it just all sounded so depressing. It didn't really matter what you did. It just was like, <laughs> oh, well, my life is over now. I think I have to yeah. go and live in the real world and stop chasing butterflies. Which it turns out you never did, no. which is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how long did that last you? And by spatial science, was it the study of space as in outer space or space as in like geographical space? Yes, geographical space. Oh. And it was a really beautiful science because it's sort of like physics or maths, so you can apply it to anything, which I loved. And after I finished studying, I went to work as a consultant for a couple of major consultancies around the world. So my job was to go into projects and work with like archaeologists or engineers or the geotechnical team and help them but also learn about their own areas of science or engineering or arts oh wow okay can you, can you see <gasps> not yet oh they're just on the other side of that jetty they're screaming okay the on the other side of the jetty can you see the water oh my, oh my gosh <laughs> <gasps> they just passed if they come back again they <laughs> No. That was amazing. Do you see them? Yeah. <laughs> you can just see the water changing. Yeah. <gasps> I'll see what happens. They're very playful. We'll see what they do. Oh, my God, that's extraordinary. Who was I? Social science, yes. So I loved the science because I, my brain is a brain that's so hungry for knowledge and getting to work on projects like this, I could go and learn about what, you know, the archaeologists were doing in their science and I got to go to these amazing vaults all over the UK and see like skulls and daggers I just have <gasps> warehouses and warehouses of them because obviously their period of human occupation is so much longer than ours and they had just had you know a jewel room and then like a leg bone room and just you know people just find this stuff all the time in Europe because they've had thousands yeah. of years of human occupation and they don't know who these bones belong to or this crown or this dagger or this sword so it was an amazing job as a very young person who just wanted to find out about the world, but it just still was being stuck in an office for eight, nine hours, sometimes 10 hours a day, which mm. felt to me like I was depressed, I think, yeah. looking back now, because, you know, five days a week, sometimes six if you're working on a big project. I couldn't imagine the next 50 or 60 years of that. Mm. I think it's really interesting how... The way I now describe people's pathway or path yay, like pathway to joy, is <laughs> as a jigsaw puzzle. And I love tracing back through all of these earlier chapters of people's lives because you can see, you can't make sense of it at the time, yeah. but in hindsight, you can sort of start to see no one ends up in their passion. You have to go through all those things, all these phases of not enjoying yourself necessarily, but picking the bits you like, getting rid of the bits you don't like, and just taking baby steps along the way. And I think it's so reassuring to hear that, you know, people do start in jobs that don't necessarily suit them. No one just wakes up one day in the career that they love. It does take a little while to get there, but you learn so much along the way. I don't think you'd look back now and go, that was a waste. Like it led you yeah. to sort of what came next. It was so difficult because, you know, I was really good at what I did. I was working for the best, one of the best companies in the world that people work their whole lives just to get into work for the company Mm. on the biggest projects in the world like I was working on the London Olympic Games and you know, all these really wow. high profile projects and I was so depressed uh, you know yeah. and I was living in London I was sort of as a young person at the peak of where they told me you should be mm. and it was just I 
didn't have it. There was no magic there for me. I just found it hard to get up every day and go to work. And there's such a fine line, I think, between worrying that you're not being grateful for all of the, the things that you do have, but then also knowing when to acknowledge that actually it's beyond that. We're not just being millennial. Like I left a, a law firm, you know, a career in a law firm, and it's not just being a millennial who got bored after a little while because it got hard. It's like when you're actually having trouble waking up to go to that job, it's probably a sign that it's just not for you. Yeah. And I love that yeah. <laughs> that led you onto a yacht called Gabrielle. Tell us about yeah. that chapter. <laughs> so I'd saved some money and, you know, I wasn't just depressed. I think I always had like a nervous breakdown. I was seeing like a therapist and wow. I took a month off work and I, I just couldn't go back to work. I took, I think I took six weeks off, like a mental health leave. And I just, I couldn't physically walk back into the office. And mm. so I, I quit. I just didn't know what to do. I was like, okay, well, I'll just travel for a while and then it will come to me. <laughs> I will figure it out. <laughs> so I spent, I think maybe two years just sort of traveling all around the world. So I started in Europe, went down to Africa, then up through parts of South America into America. And I think I was sitting in San Francisco and I was still so lost and I hadn't found what I was looking for at all. I had a great time and lots of amazing experiences, but I hadn't found what it was I was supposed to do in my mm. life. And I just thought, oh, God, what is it that you really want, Sarah? And I just, my internal voice answered, I just want to be around no people with like nothing. <laughs> Yeah, no one can find me and I don't have to ever go home. And then I thought, well, that's ridiculous. Like, where do you, how do you have that experience? And then like a boat sailed past. <laughs> I was like, that's it. I've got to, I've got to be on a boat. I just knew it. I just knew it. It was like one of those, you know, wow. sunbeam from the, the sky moment. <laughs> you so, asked for your purpose to come clear and it literally <laughs> sailed past you. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, and I was in a bad enough of a state to think that that was a great idea and I had nothing to lose. So I hired a guy, like a captain, to help me. And we I'd never sailed before. We started doing some training on his boat. He helped me buy a boat. And then I moved on to my boat and then spent about a year learning to sail it, you know, service the engines, fix things, live at sea, navigate, like everything oh I needed to know. Gosh. So I took it really seriously. I you know, fully took this project on full time and decided that's what I was going to do with my life. And <laughs> I loved it. As soon as I bought the boat and stepped onto the boat, I knew that this is what I was, I was supposed to be doing. I just felt like for the first time since I was, I guess, you know, eight years old that I felt happy again in the world. Wow. So it was an amazing experience. Gosh, and isn't that so fascinating? I mean, one of the things I love so much about this show is listening to how things that some people would think is their nightmare, being alone, out at sea, <laughs> on a boat, is someone else's calling and passion and made them feel like they'd come back to themselves for the first time in over a decade. And that makes me so excited. It makes me so yeah. excited to remind everyone that what is going to make you feel that feeling is going to be so different and weird and wacky compared to what everyone else does. But being brave enough to try enough things until you get there, you'll find it if you're not too worried about it looking like everyone else's pathway. Yeah. 
I'm reading this beautiful book at the moment. It's called Courting the Wild Twin. It's kind of like a fairy tale where when pe people are born, their twin is thrown out the window and their twin is the wild one that runs around in the forest under the moonlight and is passionate and you know tries all these new things out and we spend our life searching for them. And some, some of us get to find our wild twin and reunite and feel whole again, but some people don't. So it's a beautiful, tiny book. So if anyone listening wants a short read that will really inspire them, I just have found it so beautiful. But that's what I felt like. I felt like I'd found my wild twin and we were together on this adventure. And I was so happy. There's joy and beauty around me and dolphins all the time. <laughs> I love that concept yeah. of the wild twin. That's kind of what sees the yay or seizing your yay is like to me it's the idea of coming back to you know that inner child that you let go of and I love that it's described as like this parallel universe you who's off <laughs> yeah. doing all the things that you actually want to do but you're too scared to do that's such a beautiful yes. analogy yeah like we're working our day jobs under fluorescent lights yeah. <laughs> they're off swimming with pods of dolphins <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and so how long were you sailing before the big seed that plant was planted for captain's rest in 2008 where you got stranded in a big storm in mexico which i can't wait to hear about because that sounds a yeah terrifying <laughs> and b like miracle that you survived but c talk about the universe throwing things at you that lead you to where you're meant to be how crazy <laughs> yeah i mean it's probably two years all up like training buying the boat sailing and i was sailing up and down the coast of Mexico, thinking about doing the crossing from Mexico to Australia. My boat wasn't ready. I needed to do more to my boat, but it was possible. So I was sort of like, oh, do I go this season or do I hang around here in Mexico and go next season? So I was just kind of, you know, vagabonding around and <laughs> having a great time. And I decided to, to go. And as I was leaving Mexico off like the shores, I was probably about 30 nautical miles out at sea. It was just everything started going wrong. So I had some engine problems and then there's really unexpected weather came in and it was just the worst weather I've ever been in. And I had some ripped sails. So it was just sort of one thing after another, but I ended up hitting something <gasps> as well, which is so rare in the middle of the ocean. It does happen, but it's, it's very, very rare. And it's usually either a sleeping whale or a <gasps> pinnacle rock or a shipping container that's fallen off a boat and they float just underneath the water. You can't see them. Wow. So I ended up hitting something like that and it was awful. It was like one in the morning and no moon and it's so dark that you can't even describe the darkness. And it's like being in a cave and you're just trying to work, you work things out. You know, it was so... I ended up setting off my EPIRB, which is like an emergency positioning beacon, mm -hmm. but I'd bought it secondhand and you're supposed to like flip a little switch and push a button and then it's supposed to, the button's supposed to like pulsate a colour so you know that it's worked. The button didn't, nothing lit up. I was oh like, gosh. oh my God, I've bought this secondhand. I've, you know, I've tried to save a few hundred dollars and now I'm going <laughs> to. And it's ruined my life die. forever. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. So I spent, yeah, the next six or seven hours trying to get closer to shore and, you know, keep the boat afloat and radio for help, but no one came. <gasps> That's terrifying. Yeah. And then I ended up getting the boat close enough to shore. I didn't know it at the time because it was the middle of the night, but I ended up sort of lodging my boat 
in some other rocks where it could just sort of stay and that we kind of could just stay there and then eventually the Mexican Navy got to us because I was with I found a guy the day I left to help me sail this boat to the next spot this random guy I didn't know was like yeah I mean I'm a great sailor I'm happy to help you steer the boat to this spot and I took him on board but within like 20 minutes he was so seasick I didn't see him again until I hit whatever I hit and then I was sort of he was freaking out so I was trying to keep him calm while I was trying to save the boat and myself and a little bit of a disaster but we ended up getting rescued. Did you say the Mexican Navy found you? Mexican Navy yes they all eventually arrived and (laughs) (laughs) pulled me out of the water I was in the water at that stage. You were in the water? Yeah, it was it was like a full shipwreck, like a full <gasps> movie shipwreck. Okay, but actually, how has no one made a movie about you yet? Truly, it's I'm coming. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I want to watch it right now. <laughs> it was really, really amazing. I thought I was going to die. I really did, and you know that's a special experience in itself. Anyway, it was really they didn't know what to do with us because. I didn't have anything, no money, no passport, no visa to be in Mexico, no shoes, nothing. No shoes, so, oh, my God. Nothing, nothing. No underpants. I was just wearing, I remember just wearing, I was wearing a tracksuit and a life jacket. Like, and that's that was all it. you had. Whoa. Everything I had. So at a later point I found out there was many discussions with the Navy and the locals about what they were going to do because they didn't know what to do so this little village ended up like adopting me and they gave me this little house on the beach and they gave me a pet donkey and a pet cat (laughs) and they just thought well we'll just keep her we'll just keep her until I can figure it out so I lived on this little beach for about I think nearly six months maybe it was a bit longer with no shoes or underpants or toothbrush or food it was only had three sides and a dirt floor and a fire to cook and then I had like big bottles of water that locals would refill for me for drinking and washing. And then I just foraged on the reef out the front of my house for mussels. Oh, my God, um, you foraged. To eat. That's how I survived. And, you know, every now and then a local would drop me off a fish or some oysters or some they'd invite me over for some, some dinner <laughs> I just live like a castaway. <laughs> but how funny. I would love to know now, looking back, your reflections on happiness, looking at you with nothing, living as a castaway, versus you when you had everything that everyone thinks you should want a few years beforehand. Yeah, it's a really good question because I didn't want to leave because I was really traumatised by what happened. I didn't want to speak about it. And I knew that as soon as I left and went home, Everybody, all they wanted to do was talk about what had happened because it was, you know, it was world news at the time. Everybody knew, even people who didn't even know I was sailing. And, you know, I've only just been able to start talking about it in the last couple of years. And that's, it's been 10 or 15 years now, you know. So, but I remember just being so happy. And I think it's because I was my wild twin. (laughs) I was just, she was fully unleashed by then. Fully unleashed, yeah. It, the place I lived in Mexico wasn't anywhere close to it. It was on the Baja, so it's very remote. Just basically every couple of hundred kilometres is a tiny fishing village. And I would just walk the desert mountains in one direction until like I could feel like the sun was overhead and then I would turn around and follow my footprints back again. And that's how I spent my time. And 
one of the locals gave me this one John Grisham novel in English. <laughs> that you read over and over again? 35 times. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's amazing. You'll have to yeah. write to John Grisham and tell him. <laughs> I, I had some friends in, who were living in L.A. and they managed to get me a care parcel down through the you know chain of backpackers and people I knew in Mexico. I think it went through at seven different hands, and it had two disposable cameras, a bottle of whiskey, and some underpants. And <laughs> I still have photos, so I managed to take some disposable photos of like my house and my cat and how I ate and how I lived. Oh little candles gosh. for light at night time and things like that. So. It's so strange when I reflect on like the most unburdened happy times of my life and they've all been out in very sparse conditions, like with very little. And for some reason that almost it's because of that sparsity and like simplicity that you feel joy in a way you don't ever feel it when there's so much noise. It's so interesting. Yeah. And the locals offered for me to stay, you know, in the the village that I was in, you couldn't really buy a house. You were kind of given one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, nice. Like you can't just get on realestate.com and like, oh, that's a nice house. You just, yeah, the, <laughs> the town has to kind of like, well, we want her or we don't. And then they're like, you can have this house or there's an island over there with a house. You could have that house. But I just felt like, oh, it's a bit of a cop out. Like I don't, I didn't feel done with my life to grow old in Mexico with, you know, I just, I was still at like 26 at that time, I think. Oh my gosh, you were so young. <laughs> yeah. I felt like I had to at some point go home. <laughs> so I did. Wow. And what do you think sparked that? Like, I, I feel like people chase the feeling that you would have had there. And then for you to actually find that kind of liberation and joy, like I think people often wonder, how do I know when my next chapter is coming? Because life is so cyclical and it is so baby steps. But how do you know when it's like, it's time to go home? How did you figure that out? I just felt ready. A big part of me was probably processing what had happened because it was so traumatic and Mm. quick. And I just felt ready to go back and talk about it and then figure out what was next. I I knew I couldn't stay there forever, but six months is a really long time to live on a Mexican beach. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's a really long time actually. So it it felt like years to me. It felt like years and I was so brown and healthy. And (laughs) I think also the swine flu, so another pandemic had started. And it felt dangerous to be there and we'd worked out the like legal situation to get me out with different documents and things like that. So it sort of all just came together in the right time for me. Like, all right, well, it's probably now or never to make a break out of here. Wow. And again, this is why I love this section so much because it's like most people have heard of you because of Captain's Rest, which we haven't even gotten to yet. And you've already lived a movie (laughs) worth of life. (laughs) Yeah. So talking about going on realestate.com.au and finding a house and being like, I'm going to buy that, (laughs) talk us through the next chapter, which led to Strawn in Tassie, which again, so my husband's from Devonport. He knows Strawn intimately. We were kind of surprised that someone who had been so global and had no connection, like no roots to Tasmania would end up in Strawn of all places. How did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got back to Australia and... You know, I'd lived this amazing life and adventure for years at that point and I was starting stri- straight back into Melbourne, into university, so I decided that I would retrain to become a designer 
I didn't care whether I got a job afterwards or not. I just thought I don't care anymore. I just want to be happy and to do what mm. I really love to do. And it was a really confronting experience going from the life I'd lived for years to, you know, brunches and trams and gossip <laughs> and shopping and yeah. where you live and who are your parents and that kind of very different society. And I really struggled. Like I really struggled. Mm. You know, people would we'd have coffee or hang out with friends and they'd talk, be talking about, I don't know, whatever it is that just, it just all felt so meaningless to me. I just felt so disconnected from society. And I guess it was, I was probably suffering from some PTSD, but I also had found my wild twin and didn't know how to reintegrate into society. So I just kind of muscled my way through. I just went to uni and then I got a job and then I started my own design studio and then I hustled for work and, you know, I got a mortgage and then within a couple of years my life had just tumbled back into this modern Western model that we were all taught. You know, I met I met someone, I married them, you know, we had a dog and I just blinked and I was just so unhappy and I just thought, what has happened? I worked so hard to break free and find a life that suited me and then I gave up on it. Anyway, I was reading a magazine and there was this article about the west coast of Tasmania about how like, you know, these beautiful landscapes that were just like mountains and mist and described it as like almost like a mortal-like quality where it doesn't feel like any human had ever lived there and never will and it the remoteness of it and how no one ever visits there. And Mm, It's called the Wild West among Tasmanians. (laughs) Yeah, and I just thought, you know what, like, I just need to get out of here. I just need to get out of here. And they showed my shack in a little insert picture. So there was like the jetty and my shack. And I just thought, God, wouldn't it be nice to be there and just forget about the world and I could work from here. And that was my answer. And that's why it's called Captain's Rest because I hadn't had a chance to stop and really process what had happened or design my life the way I wanted it to. I just needed to survive because I had no money or anything going on back in our modern world so I I just got on real estate and the shack was for sale it had been for sale for five years for I think it was 88,000 something like that so I rang up the real estate agent and I bought it I just bought it I was like well (laughs) I'm just gonna move to the part-time and then live in the modern world part-time as well that was my grand plan about how I was going to make this work and I'd always been drawn to Tasmania I'd always wanted a house here and everyone just was always like, why would you want to live in Tasmania? It's an awful place. <laughs> you live there, leave. You know, I'd had a, a girlfriend who was from Tasmania in the previous years and she was just telling me what an awful place it was. <laughs> no, it's I a beautiful part of the world. I know. Well, it's, it's known that way now, but when I bought this place, um, it was just not a popular place to be. Not trendy. Um, but I, didn't, I, I didn't care. Neither was Mexico. You know, like I didn't really mind. I just wanted to be in the elements on my own. And while I was renovating this place, I ended up getting very sick. But also at the same time, I got a bit of a surprise divorce from, you know, it just all fell apart. Some secrets were unearthed, I guess, on my partner's behalf. Like half, and it all just came such a big shock to me that, it was incredible how quickly my life fell apart in about a month. You know, mm. I was just so sick. I was didn't have any way to live. 
ended up going through this very nasty financial separation. It was just all so much. When it rains, it pours. <laughs> it does, yeah. So my my plan about living here, I guess, didn't work out. I, I had to rent it out as an Airbnb to pay my own way. It was the only income I had at the time. And so I really had to make it work. But I'd had this background in science and in design, but also in this science where I could go into any field and work it out scientifically how it was done. So I really threw myself into the science of hosting, the science of marketing, the science of tourism, and because I needed to make my business work. And because I needed I wanted to survive, I didn't want it to take me down. And I guess fast forward, it worked. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I remember the locals here said to me, I'll never forget, they're like, no one ever comes here. You're never, ever rented out. They said, you might get Christmas and New Year rented, but that's it. Like you won't even be able to rent it as a rental. And like now it's, I think there's twice weekly flights to Strawn and we've built this entire industry around captain's rest. It's quite amazing, but yeah it's interesting what you can do <laughs> oh my gosh Sarah what a story yeah. oh my gosh this is so fascinating and exciting and heart-wrenching and heartwarming I feel like I need to like have a little lie down to just process it all <laughs> wow oh my gosh I mean again just to reiterate people who walk into anyone's life right now and see Captain's Rest and see all the highlights and the new masterclasses coming out and the published author can so easily underestimate all of the, like nothing is an overnight success. There have been no, so not. many ups no. and downs to get you here. Yeah, I worked so hard and it wasn't just like I put it on Airbnb and people were like, oh, wow, it's amazing. It became really successful. Like it, it was work and it was all by design and it was because I worked so hard doing the right things mm. that I was able to build my own business, but also build the business so big that people who wanted to come and experience this couldn't even get in. So now I've built the whole town around me is so busy because everyone knows that captain's dress and just wants to come for the experience. And it's incredible. Oh my gosh. You know, we're booked out every night of the year. Oh it's my never, gosh. Yeah. Like it's, that's insane. It's never yeah. So it's always probably about a six to nine month booked in advance. Wow. It's amazing. Uh, the only reason I'm here right now is because we had a Sydney booking and I thought, oh, bugger, I'm going. You probably can't even get yourself in there. That's no, amazing. This is the first time in a year I've been here. It's been a year. Wow. And the reason I was here last year is because of lockdown. So I, lo I spent lockdown here, which was awesome. Oh, my God. I, with pods of dolphins. I mean, how glorious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, before we move on to what you've then been able to turn that whole experience into, as well as building pretty much a whole town around this beautiful Airbnb, I want to just touch on the money side as well, because I think sometimes that's another part that we skate over, partly because I was brought up, I don't know if you were the same with, you know, the idea that you don't talk about money, politics and religion, but I think that also means we skate over parts of people's stories that could be really helpful to other people who are earlier on in their pathway. How did you, like, it's, alarming that you could buy something that now is what it is for 80,000 but 80,000 is also a lot of money when you've been yep. also traveling and bought your own boat like I think it sounds like oh I just had money and I just financially worked myself <laughs> out but I'm I'm sure it wasn't like that no it wasn't like that so I had I had about ten thousand dollars in savings so I paid the deposit on this house which was eight thousand dollars so ten percent deposit 
and an eight thousand dollar deposit my melbourne brain is like (laughs) what (laughs) don't forget this was supposed to be my holiday home you know and i was going to renovate it a little bit and spend part of the year down here you know working by the fire and watching the dolphins and you know pay the i think it was six hundred dollar mortgage a month or something like that Mm -hmm. so that was my plan renovations ended up costing me about forty thousand dollars and i did them all on credit card so i didn't have to save them i do not recommend anyone do this but when anyone who's renovated a house will know once you get started of just a lick of paint then the windows need to change then the floor needs to be done and the lights like it just goes on and on and it's really hard to hold back so i spent that on credit card and then when i got this horrible divorce i essentially had to pay out my partner the worth of this place as well. So wow. I had to pay out, it was almost $100,000 as well. <gasps> so all I was left with was this mortgage, a credit card bill, $100,000 debt to my ex, no car, nothing. So I think what people don't realize is it wasn't just a credit card debt and an $8,000 deposit, but I also had to pay out this nasty divorce settlement, which I just had to work really hard and pay off like it was not easy. And I think the ABC did an article about Airbnbs a couple of years ago and they interviewed me and they wanted to know the specifics, like how much it makes a year and how much I you know, I paid for it and renovated it. And they glossed over those details and everyone on Facebook was just so nasty. Like, you know, who has the, has given her the money to do this? She's obviously had an inheritance and she's just a little rich white girl. And the opposite was true. I was so, I had nothing mm. and I just had to work really hard to make this work because I, ha- I had to, I had no other choice. Mm. And that's why I think it's so important to cover that because I think that is probably the assumption that a lot of people make about most people's stories because we don't get into the nitty gritty of that. But it's also really, once you do hear it, it's so inspiring and reassuring that you can come back from overseas where you don't have a lot of savings when you arrive home and you can feel behind and in debt and many people probably feel that right now but you can get ahead if you just chip away over time yeah you know so many of my students now were in the same position as me as I was and I encourage them all to go and find areas of the world that aren't popular and discover them or explore them because there are so many pockets of the world in Australia that are incredible and beautiful and affordable not just in Tasmania, but all over the place. But we just Mm. all have this mindset that we want to live where everyone else is talking about or living instead of trying something new. And I think if you're brave enough to try something new, you can bring people to you. You know, I've had so many successful students who have bought little shacks in the middle of nowhere where no one ever goes and they've all been crazy successful like I was. They've all been able to build their own audience and showcase the beauty that's around them too and draw people out of the cities to to go on an adventure to find them. I always say someone out there is looking for exactly what you have. So if you try and be someone else, you're actually depriving those people of the thing they're looking for. And if you mm-hmm. just trust, like there's obviously a huge, huge portion of the population like yourself who don't want to go where's trendy and where everyone else is going. And yeah, you also mentioned your students, which is amazing. Tell us about <laughs> how you've become a teacher and have launched your own masterclasses for the science of hosting yeah so I started them about three or four years ago now um and it's my main job that's I don't run captain's rest anymore I have a team of people who work for me with my masterclass and my business and they run captain's rest now for me but when captain's rest 
hit the success it did, the whole of Australia took notice. They were just so like, how did she do this? Like our industry then, it wasn't like it was now where there was lots of different Airbnbs. It was just sort of like three or four really famous ones and some really well-known hotels. And I just came out of nowhere and just, you know, became this overnight success. And I had so many people get in touch, you know, how did you do that? Can you give us some advice? Can you come and work on my place? You know, can you do my marketing for me? And I, <laughs> I did a couple of odd jobs. But what I realized I was doing is just teaching them my method in yeah. all the different areas. So over hosting, there's really 10 different areas, like, you know, what to buy, who your audience is, pricing, styling, all the way through to like management, marketing, um, or the business side of things. So I'd really cracked the code on all of those specific areas. So I realized I was actually just teaching my clients for a lot of money one-on-one this formula that I had and applying it to them and their property and their audience. So it got to the point where I was probably getting about five emails or DMs a day of just desperate people. Like I bought this beautiful house. We're losing money. I'm going to, I'm going to lose this house if I don't make it successful. And they weren't just people who are well off who wanted a beautiful place. They were real people who were struggling. They had these homes that they loved and they loved more more than just what they were to other people they'd had there were their grandma's houses or they were mm. their dream to have always had a holiday house and could I help them but they didn't have any money to pay me so I decided I'd put on three workshops they could come I would teach my methods and then that would be I would go back to captain's rest and that would be the end of that but they were amazing and we had about 40 people come to the three classes maybe 50 but then they all went off and became so successful. And then everyone's like, wow, all these people who <laughs> had anything to do with Sarah have become ridiculously successful. So it just grew from there. It became huge. And now I teach people all over the world. Wow. Yeah, on every corner <laughs> of the globe. And it's well known as like I'm the expert in hosting in the world. It's incredible. That and is... so I spend most of my time on Zoom teaching or writing. I've just I got to the point where I found that all of our students were so successful. We started having people come just for their businesses and just for their interiors. Um, so we, I've just started creating another course just for them because, yeah, they're not there at all for hosting, but they just recognize how successful people who'd come were and they just wanted to know why. So it's just grown and grown and grown. Oh, <laughs> my <stop>. God. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I always think, you know, talking to 26-year-old you on a beach in Mexico, like, no. <laughs> you could not probably have convinced you that you would be the world's foremost expert on something that you had never probably ever had a finger in any pie related to hosting or Airbnbs or design or anything like how crazy I know I never thought I'd end up here but I didn't really have an idea of where I would end up you know I was always searching or I just didn't have a clear understanding of what it was I was supposed to be doing but I know every day when I teach my students that this is this is what it all was for and this is why I was here this is what I'm here to do because Honestly, like I, we still do our face-to-face classes maybe like once or twice a year because I just love doing them because I'm with everybody. And But, you know, people leave the class crying and you've changed my life. And then I go out and I see them on the covers of magazines and 
they write to me and they're like, this is everything I've ever wanted. Oh, my you know, gosh. I've read this magazine since I was 19 years old and now I'm on the cover. And, you know, as before the pandemic hit, I was travelling in Europe and there wasn't one magazine I could pick up without seeing a student in it anywhere that That's I went. Insane. I'd always went to a news agency and flick. And I'm like, oh, there's like so-and-so in Scotland and there's so-and-so and... <gasps> And they're all just people like me who never thought they could. And it's just the best thing I've ever done by far. Oh, it's my incredible. gosh. Congratulations. I mean, that gives me goosebumps. It's just <laughs> such a, a beautiful, beautiful story. And it's only really just beginning. I mean, you've just published a book. Like I feel like there are so yes. many ways that this is just the launch pad for more wonderful things that are going to come from you and your students. But it's funny that you said like, it all came from people who thought that they couldn't. And we've kind of weaved in the NATA, which is the next section that's all about sort of the challenges along the way of which you've touched on many, but self-doubt is a really, really big one, particularly yeah. when you don't have money backing you or you don't have like 25 years of study or experience in a particular area and you are going out to do something that not many people have done and locals are telling you isn't going to work, let alone your own inner critic. What advice do you have for, I mean, anyone really who's in an earlier chapter like the equivalent of what you were doing traveling the world, just lost, unsure, or earlier on in their business where they have that chatter of like, I can't do this. Like, this isn't going to work. I'm not, you know, who am I to do this? And <laughs> and then end up being a global expert. Like what words would you say to either younger you or anyone else sort of on that pathway? Quite a lot to say on this subject because I see it in everybody I teach and I see it in mm. myself too. So I have the pleasure of having 20 to 30 people sit in front of me every week and watching them come in terrified, not want, like thinking, oh, I'm not good enough to be here and I'm surely I can't create something as good as all these other students that Sarah has. And I sometimes have to sit down with them and I said, well, who do you admire? And I, they show me their Instagram accounts and I'll say, well, they're a student. And she <gasps> cried in the first day that she, you know, came in here and everyone starts from the same position and we all start with that self-doubt and we probably all still have it mm. every day. I mean... When I got my book deal, my, my contract, I just felt like the biggest imposter. Like, who yeah. am I to write a book? <laughs> like, you know, that was from the shelves around the world. And like, why would anyone be interested in what I have to say about design? And, you know, I admire so many incredible designers around the world. And my book is going to be sitting along next to their, their art and their work and their voice, you know, for a long time. And, I feel exactly the same as whoever is out there listening to this thinking, oh, I'm not, I don't know if I'm good enough to do whatever it is. So when I first started in the hosting industry, but also teaching it, you know, I wasn't going out to host and I wasn't even going out to teach. Like both of these things that I ended up doing were just, I guess, fate. They were fated for me, but they weren't my intention. Mm. I got a lot of criticism because I'm very young and well, I'm probably not, but I felt like I was very young back then. <laughs> you are. And, <laughs> You've lived a lifetime worth. But <laughs> <laughs> and I got a lot of criticism by older people in the industry who hadn't had the same amount of success as quickly as I had. So mm. it was quite nasty. I was bullied. Oh, Lots of really awful things happened, which I wouldn't go into. It's just sort of schoolyard stuff. But it really cut me down and it made me feel, I guess the intention was to put me in my place and like, you know, who are you to, to teach people and, you know, be so successful if you haven't really earned it. And 
I really was quite upset about this. For years, I couldn't find the answer. I just kind of muscled through and I was like, well, you know, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing because I love it. And, you know, it kept being successful and everyone was happy and all my class students were really successful. But I found this meditation teacher that I interviewed in London the last time I was there and I said to her, how do you deal with criticism? Because it's just eating me up inside this feeling I have of not being good enough and oh, and people yeah. tell you that, you know, it really hurts me and how do I feel okay about it? And she said to me, she's like, Sarah, everybody gets criticised for everything that they do. So if you just quit all of your businesses and just sat in a room, you'd be criticised for that by somebody or yes. the person out there listening who isn't starting their business or, you know, quitting their job to fa- follow their passion, they'll be criticised for don't, not doing it. You know, they'll be criticised, well, why don't you quit the job? Like you haven't got the guts to do it. You know, so I think as soon as I realised that no matter what it is I was out there doing, if I was working at Woolworths, <laughs> someone would criticise me for that because I'm too old to be doing a job like that or I sh- I've got a degree, I should be aiming higher. Or So I it, it clicked for me that it didn't matter because I'm going to get it that regardless. So that really helped me a lot. That's such a good point. You can't please everyone. There will always be someone who's got something to say about what you're doing. Yes. <laughs> it's always yeah. about them and not about you anyway. But oh, yeah. it's like if I'm going to get hate for doing something I don't like, I might as well get hate for something that I do like. Like It's going to come yeah. either way. I might as well just do what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, I think now I'm older, I have perspective on it. You can, I can see that, that I understand why I was criticised because of other people's insecurities about themselves yeah. and their own choices. And I'm now I don't ever think about it. it. Makes me laugh that I was so concerned with it. Yeah. But it's, you need to have different perspectives sometimes. I think that's so true. I think it's definitely one of those things that just comes with age. Like there's so much yeah. angst <laughs> earlier on in the journey, and then you just get to that point where you're like, eh, you know, all the only person whose opinion matters are the people you actually care about who are around you. Yeah, and that's right. I think all my students and all of my guests are just you know, thriving and why would I, why other people would think about that. Yeah, totally. So the last section is called Play TA, which is the section where we kind of strip back everything we've spoken about and finding your purpose and your passion and particularly when you do love your job and when it does allow you a bit of a non-conventional like work-life structure, I think it's really hard for people to have any kind of boundaries for downtime or the captain getting rest in this case, (laughs) but I think it's, you're better at what you do. And it's also important to never get to the end of your life and think, wow, I worked and died. And that's all I did. There's such a thing as pleasure and hobbies and doing things that help you forget what the time is, or just detach completely from the to-do list, which I imagine having, you know, had your experiences in Mexico and then living out in, you know, the wild west of Tassie, that you'd probably be better than most people at doing this. But what are some things you do just for joy that aren't related to teaching or designing or hosting or bettering yourself that are just for fun? (laughs) I'm a really boring person. I love to go for a walk. (laughs) (laughs) You think you're boring, but that's the most interesting story I've heard in a long time. (laughs) I love walking. I I don't live here at Captain's Rest, obviously. I live in another part of Tasmania, but it's equally as beautiful. I live in a beautiful house on the water and I wake up every morning and I walk on – all the farm and the coastline around me so I walk for about an hour or two every day wow. in the bush I pick up you know starfish and seaweed and so I spend every morning like that and then 
after work, I spend every evening reading in front of the fire just with everything shut off and oh. listen to records and play classical music. And John I Grisham, spend... is it still crime books? No, but I've read all of John Grisham's novels now. <laughs> he I should give one. you a commission, <laughs> honestly. It was, the, it was the Pelican Brief and I've read all of them. It was such a good book. But, um... <laughs> oh, my gosh. So what, what kind of books? I spend about seven hours a night reading every night, all sorts. I love books so much at the moment I go through phases but at the moment I love a story yeah like a really good juicy story and I've just finished reading Name of the Wind which is so beautiful if anyone wants to read a beautiful beautiful book that's an amazing story read Name of the Wind but before that I was going through a true crime binge phase so I was reading a lot of true crime they're my favorites I'm all about crime and I think it's because My job is so joy focused and uplifting. Like yep. people find it so weird. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, serial killers really help me go to sleep at night. Yeah. But I think because it is so different, it like pulls my brain away because I, I can't relate it to like fulfillment and purpose and life and joy and kindness. It's just so separate. But yeah, so tell me your favorites. I would like to write them down. <laughs> the best one I've read is Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. I can't remember who wrote it. It's, it was, I think it was written in the 80s, but it's so good. It's so good. <gasps> I've never heard of it. Yes. A new Please one. read it. It's like, no, it's, it's a very old book, but it's about it's murder that's happened. It was actually, it's true. It's true crime from like you know, the 80s or the 70s. I'm probably really messing this up, but it's one of those old classics that everyone should read. It's so beautiful. It's written about this murder that happened in the deep south and this reporter goes down there to investigate this and it's his account of his time and he goes to all these wild parties and everyone's like on LSD and (laughs) southern. it's just incredible. And then the other one I really liked was The Killer Beside Me which is about... I think I have that somewhere. It's really good. There's a couple of other really good ones that I read. I really want to read The Trauma Cleaner. I haven't read it yet. haven't heard of that. That's supposed to be incredible. It's written by an Australian woman who is was a trauma cleaner who could go and clean up crime scenes. Oh and my god! I heard a podcast with her, and I, I really want to read that. But I'm just I'm just out of my true crime phase at the moment. But I'll have to get back into it. <laughs> I never get out of that phase. I live in that phase. Okay. So, yeah. so I'm totally going to spend the rest of the week reading those books. <laughs> yeah, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is one of those beautiful books that you'll gift to people because it's so oh. beautifully written as well. So it's got the true crime but it's also like reading this beautiful book that's you know it's beautiful flowery language and it just takes you away to another place sometimes I feel so bad because like I always have recommendations on the show and I'm like this is a really uplifting it's meant to be really beautiful (laughs) you walk away feeling really happy but there's all these murder recommendations (laughs) well courting the wild twin would be the one people should go and get it's so small so it's something you could read in a night you know and just be so inspired by that beautiful book I'm always going to remember that the wild twin and if I ever start to feel a bit like I've gone back into the productivity hamster wheel I'm going to think of evoking my wild twin that's such a good one it's beautiful yes second last question three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation and because you have such a cool and random story you've probably said more already than most people do in each episode, but what are some random things about you that like only someone who lived with you would know? Uh, I think people think that I'm this like wild vagabond and I am in some ways. Like, I, you know, I live on my own. I just wander 
the bush and read, but I don't drink really. I don't drink coffee. I don't eat wow. gluten or dairy. I can like I only eat very basic things. I can't handle fluorescent lighting or crowds or noise. So I've got like a sensory sensitivity. Wow. That kind of I start freaking out and melting down. So even physically I can't handle the modern world. I can't even eat the food or you know, it's, it's really difficult for me. So often people will see me in a city and they're traveling somewhere and try and talk to me, but I'm always like, I guess I'll probably come across quite rude because I'm just not coping. <laughs> like it's just something I'm not good at. That's so interesting. Um, it's like you were born of another time. Yes, I think so. Or well, wasn't socialized as a child properly or something. It's like those encyclopedias. <laughs> you were like decades before yes. your time. <laughs> yeah. So that would be one. I still, even though I could navigate around the ocean, I still can't tell my left from my right. I still have to hold my hands up to do the L. <laughs> like, that's, that's Sail right. the world alone, but that's fine. Yeah. You don't know left and right. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I don't know. And I, yeah, I still can't spell even though my book is, I think it's been spell checked. So I think I'm pretty good. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I have not improved my spelling through that exercise. Oh, they're great. You're also like a really wonderful ambassador for solitude in a time where we really try and fill gaps and silences and even our like incessant need to pull out our phone to pass the time when we're waiting two minutes for an Uber or something. Like you notice that you need to fill those spaces. And I think you're a really, really wonderful reminder that actually being in your own company is such a skill, but it's actually yeah. also very good for you. It is. And, you know, I have friends and a partner, but I've had to recently start going to the local cafe at least three times a week and just sit there for at least an hour around people and I've been practicing so, <laughs> oh my god that's so cute I have to practice uh, not being alone <laughs> the cafe owners don't know this but I'm sure they'll listen to this and I'll be like that's why she comes in here and just sits there on her own she's I'm trying to um desensitize myself it's to like taking people. you to puppy school you know how you have to socialize puppies <laughs> yeah. with other puppies <laughs> I, know, I feel so embarrassed but that's that's how it is no but I also think that's another good reminder that like you know what suits you right like you're Body yes. gives you data and feedback on what environments suit you best. And I think yeah. what a lot of anxiety or chronic illness or just unhappiness is from is people forcing their personality type into situations constantly that are not suited to that personality type. Yeah, I think a lot of people think that if they do what they're told will bring happiness, that they'll be happy. So currently well, I think what's trendy is moving to Tasmania, <laughs> you know, having a shack or whatever. Yeah. And I just if people just follow what's in their heart, even if it's not trendy. I just think there's nothing that can match happiness. It really isn't. It's just what we're here to be. We're here to be happy. And mm. you know, my mum always would say to me when I was younger, and I never forgot it, is that you don't taking anything with you. You know, we all work oh. so hard for houses and cars and money in the bank, but none of it is coming with us. You know. I love go. That one. I think if I try and remember this that I don't really own this house. Someone else will own this one day. Just enjoy it. <laughs> I have it. I say that one all the time. I love it because we do get so focused on attachments to things that really in this game of life don't matter, but like memories and joy and friendships, those things are like eternal and they're the things that matter, you know? I agree. 
Well, very last question to finish off. What is your favourite quote? I have so many. (laughs) (laughs) My current favourite is water off a duck's back. Oh, (laughs) I love that. Especially since you're rounded by lots of ducks. (laughs) Yeah, they're just all here sitting around my house. Because as I've gotten older, things have gotten easier. You know, like things that would have melted me down five years ago, I just think, oh, that's really funny that that happened. Yeah. (laughs) I agree. And I, just, I really, I really get it now. And when I was younger, you know, my mom and my grandparents would say, "When you get older, you know, you'll understand, or things will be easier." And you, I never really understood that. But as you do get older, things just do tend to get easier, and nothing really matters at the end of the day. I've realized that everything just comes and goes, and we all worry too much. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what a beautiful way to finish. Thank you so, so much for sharing your incredible story. I am 100% hoping that there's some kind of movie producer or like (laughs) epic storytelling person who can come and pick this up and turn it into a Hollywood (laughs) Oscar winning movie because what an amazing journey and just so interesting. And I would love to say that I'm going to come to Captain's Rest, but I think I have to put my name on the list for like 2028 (laughs) to come and visit. (laughs) 2022 from february we'll have we have availability oh amazing i'm actually literally going to go and put my name down right now (laughs) if you are someone who can plan i just find that there's two types of people people who plan their holidays for the next year and people who just can't and i'm a just just can't type of person (laughs) so when i get bookings for 2022 i think who are these amazing people who know what they're doing in 2022 no it's just that they're willing to do whatever it takes to get an experience at captain's rest that's what you've created something good enough that people will plan more than they ever would (laughs) i hope when you come you see dolphins you see a whole pot of dolphins when you come and you let me know if you do because they do actually do a lap once a day so you just have to be lucky enough to look out the window and see them they come in and they come in close and (gasps) amazing oh well thank you so much this has brought me so much yay and uh i'll include a link to the book which is out what date is it officially out Early September, it's out in Australia and then in other countries in the months, rolling months after that, that would be amazing. My book is for everybody. It's about styling your own home in your own way and simple rules that you can use to do that that I teach my students. And it's a really beautiful book. And in fact, a lot of my students are in it. So their spaces are so beautiful. I've used them in my book to demonstrate as examples of what I'm trying to teach, which is beautiful oh my gosh the imagery in it is insane I was just flicking through it like this is like going to be really bad for my renovation budget (laughs) (laughs) because I was so excited I just wanted to print the whole thing out (laughs) my next class comes out in September with the book it'll be an online class anyone can do around the world and it's beautiful we're shooting it in the same space as we shot the book oh amazing in the same style so don't renovate too much until we come and study and then yeah. finish it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, that was a first of many for this podcast. First spatial scientist, shipwrecked sailor and global Airbnb authority. And what a fascinating ride it was. You know, I'm a sucker for a niche community or a world I know nothing about. And I could feel my brain just expanding as I listened to Sarah. What a shining example of embracing solitude, never losing sight of your wild twin and life having so many surprises in store for you that you never dreamed could be just around the corner. As promised, the links to her new book, which is on pre 
sale as well as Captain's Rest and her masterclasses are in the show notes. Please shower Sarah with love if it feels right to share the episode and tag at Captain's Rest, but also just jump on over to indulge in the interior design porn. It is a pure delight. I can't believe we're in July already. I feel like half of this show is just me exclaiming how quickly time is passing week to week. (laughs) I hope you're all having a wonderful couple of days and are seizing your yay. 